This episode of The Writer Files is brought to you by the inspiring team at Author Accelerator. There's never been a better time to get serious about that book idea that's been rattling around in your head. And working with an Author Accelerator book coach is the best way to write forward. Author Accelerator book coaches give writers feedback, deadlines, and step-by-step guidance while you write so that you can actually finish your book. Your book coach will give you the customized tools and blueprints to success that are so often lacking in the traditional publishing world. And if you think book coaching sounds like a gig you'd like to do, many authors and copywriters have the exact skill sets needed to become great book coaches themselves. Author Accelerator offers intensive book coach training and master classes so that you can help other writers reach their goals. Just head over to authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles for more info and to get a free seven-day writing challenge to start mapping out your own book. That's authoraccelerator.com slash writerfiles. We can change the past, but we can take that lesson and apply it to the present and the future by helping today's victims. Greetings and welcome back to The Writer Files. I am your host, Kelton Reed. And in part two of this file, the award-winning novelist, speaker, and activist, Talia Karner, spoke with me about the intensive research processes that go into her novels, why she chose fiction to write about global social issues, the real-life crisis happening right before our eyes, and what we can do about it. Ms. Karner writes suspense novels with a social message, and her latest historical novel, The Third Daughter, aims to turn the issue of sex trafficking into real-world activism. Tali's mission is to transform the lessons of the past into action in the present. Her fifth book has been described as, quote, a frightening journey into the new world of the late 1800s, told by a trusting young woman lured from Russia and forced into prostitution in Buenos Aires. Before becoming a professional novelist, the author had a corporate career in the magazine business, started her own business as a marketing consultant for Fortune 500 companies, and was a counselor and lecturer for the Small Business Administration. Talia is a popular international speaker who's keynoted close to 300 events on pressing social issues facing women around the globe. In part two of this file, Talia and I discussed why fiction writers are like comedians, the importance of historical fiction for unearthing the skeletons in society's closet, the current crisis of sex trafficking, not only abroad, but right here in the U.S., how we can educate and protect our children, why we need to apply lessons from the past to enact a change now, and her two big pieces of advice for aspiring fiction writers. To learn more about human trafficking in the USA and what we can do to help stop it, you'll find a wealth of information that the authors provided for us in her article titled Take Action Against Trafficking, linked in the show notes and on taliacarner.com. And if you missed the first half of this show, you can find it in the show notes, the archives at writerfiles.fm, and you'll find the last 100 episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. Stay tuned. The Writer Files is brought to you by my friends at copyblogger.com. Words that work. Build your online authority with powerfully effective content marketing. Get superior content marketing education so you can build a remarkable online presence. Authors, bloggers, journalists, online publishers, and entrepreneurs, head over to copyblogger.com to learn more. That's copyblogger, 
www.thewriterfiles.com. And if you're a fan of The Writer Files, please click subscribe to automatically see new interviews as soon as they're published and leave us a rating or a review over on Apple Podcasts to help other writers find us. The Third Daughter that's coming out and deals with sex trafficking started, I, I it had been in my mind for years. I've been looking into subjugation of, of women and making sex slavery is a tool of war when women have been captured and taken from one country to another. That's all of this had been in my mind for quite a few years, but then uh, a, uh, a reader at a, at a conference, not a conference, one of my speaking engagements is I was autographing, said something about something, and it's like, oh my God. And I immediately said, okay, this, I need to look at it further, you know, and this is how it comes. It's not a big process of trying to find a story. They just kind of come to you Mm -hmm. by uh, chance and and then you just kind of grab onto it. Yes. That's that's pretty interesting. Um, Of course, I think probably a lot of writers feel that way and and others may struggle uh, with that idea finding process. But I think some of the, yeah, some of the most powerful ideas are right in front of us, right? And definitely, since I write about social issues, they are all over the place. I I call them, they are skeletons in our closets, which I take out and dance with them. Yeah. Because uh, I I try to make the subject palpable enough that people want to read about it and stay with the book. They, they, you know, the challenge of an author, a fiction writer I can talk about every every form of writing is some, somewhat similar to what a comedian on stage would feel. He has 30 seconds to grab the audience to start the laughter, and then he needs to ratchet it up and higher and higher and higher and keeps on. And in between, he has to kind of give a, a few split seconds of reprieve so the audience can catch its breath and then go up again even higher. In a way, a fiction writer has a similar problem or challenge, I would say, with the caveat that my reader, let's say, reads at night before she falls asleep and the book drops on the floor along next to her slippers. In the morning, she gets up and she runs to work and she has an impossible boss and her mother calls her and they have a fight on the phone. And then the nurse calls from school and tells her that a kid fell and gashed his chin. And and then she rushes in a car and the car overheats and she's st- stuck in traffic. Her life is really very <laughs> full of difficulties all day long. And I want her to think all throughout that, what happened next in that book? And all she wants to do is get home late at night, back in bed, and pick up that book where she had left it. So I have to keep on ratcheting that tension and make sure that unlike the comedian that has the audience sitting right there in front of him or her, I have to make sure that she comes back to my book. 
mm-hmm. that she doesn't want to be, and I don't know when she's going to leave it and what page. And it's not like a planned joke. She may fall asleep at any spot. So it constantly has to be ratcheted up in terms of the the moral dilemma and the the social issue and, and making the readers so involved in it and caring that she and I say she is a general word for a reader. So that's the the story with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about the third daughter a little bit more, and I think. You know, obviously, you've mentioned that it, that the topic, uh, sex trafficking, is pretty relevant. I think to to today, or at least some of the things that are happening in the news. But yeah, the third daughter, uh, described as a as a frightening journey in the new world of the late 1800s, told by the protagonist, a trusting young woman lured from Russia and forced into prostitution in Buenos Aires. And why why is this? Because, you know, the, the, the idea of this book caught my attention because I think, as I mentioned before, kind of the, the Jeffrey Epstein saga, which I'd be interested to hear your take on. But why is this novel so important today? Why is, why is this story of um, this kind of shocking <laughs> legal union of traffickers uh, from, you know, so long ago, why is it so important to, to kind of revisit at least that? That story. Yeah. yeah. What happens is that, unfortunately, the methods have not changed. And the supply of people who are in dire situations of hunger and strife and poverty and war and, and persecution, it's unfortunately, it's, it's unending supply of people who would be willing to take the risks, even if they know the risks, but many don't even know the risks. They they believe the promises. And needless to say, America today is what America was for the to the rest of the world 120 years ago when my where my book is set, except that Many people in Eastern Europe didn't even know the difference between North America and South America. So they thought they were going to America. In my book, the, the father of this girl, when the trafficker tries to convince him that he wants to marry the daughter, the father says, I have a brother in Pittsburgh. Is Buenos Aires near it? He says, just south. <laughs> right. So that is uh, was the t- level of ignorance you think that people just did not have maps. They they didn't know a lot of what we take for granted that everybody would know today. So let's start with that, that the methods have not changed. And uh, my uh, trigger for this book was a short story by Sholem Aleichem. That's a short story Yiddish writer who wrote uh, this character of Tevye, the dairyman that you we all know from Fiddler on the Roof, the adaptation uh, of many of his stories were taken into Fiddler on the Roof. In the same short story collection, there is a short story called The Man from Buenos Aires, and it is now retranslated by me on my website for your readers to read. And that is a man who who is very sleek and is very successful in business, but he never tells 
the author, he's talking to the author in this particular story, he never tells him what really was his enterprise in Buenos Aires is, but you know, you feel that something is is not very kosher in this, this guy. <laughs> so today, and uh, Jeffrey Epstein, I've learned so much about today's sex trafficking that we can't even, we'll have to have a whole program right about that. But I would just like to say the following, that domestic, domestically recruited sex traffickers, uh, trafficking victims, unlike like a two thirds are imported from abroad and about a third are recruited right in their own neighborhoods. Would you, do you know what's the average age of recruitment of people, mostly girls, but some boys? 12 to 14 years old in the United States. That's right in the schools. It takes place in the schools. So there's an organization called protect.org that now in California, now they moved into Nevada and some other states, but they brought in fantastic programs that start at fourth grade all through high school to learn to deal with and confront situations of potential sex trafficking and for their friends and for, as a community and the teachers and, and what the teachers can do if they suspect and there's a certain protocol and it's, it's an incredible program. That is what we need around the country because you have people like Jeffrey Epstein who takes advantage of it, and un unfortunately, he was protected by very powerful people. And the fact that he'd already been convicted once, and we know what's the recidivism rate of pedophilia, because that is pedophilia. So we know what's the recidivism rate, which is the highest of any of the of of any crime that can happen is the pedophilia. So the fact that he was allowed to continue to operate the way he did and in the open and bring all these, some of his friends, fly them over to his island, um, it, it is beyond the pale. I'd like also mm -hmm. to mention one more thing that about the recruitment of young people today is that in a survey of young people who had been rescued from prostitution, from trafficking, it came out that until 2015, that young person first met her recruiter in person. Maybe it's in a mall or in a bus station or through a, right in a school. You have school gangs. You have all kinds of people operating within the school. But she and he met them first in person. Since 2015, the first contact was had been made online through the various, you know, there are so many games now. People, uh, you know, it used to be that parents could be controlling their children's emails. Now, in every game, you, you have a whole separate conversation that can go on. It's impossible to control that. And that is how, since 2015, a lot of young people have been recruited. So 
this is a definitely a problem that so far we've been losing. We, we are very far behind the curve on the growth of this pro, uh, problem and all of the issue of sex trafficking. And as I'm saying, I'll be t- I can talk about it a lot. And I'll be doing it in many of my speeches because the thing that I do in as far part as part of my book tour is that I don't do readings from my own book, but rather I give a speech on the subject of my book on the background. So whether anybody has read it or not, just as your listeners, I hope they will read the book now, but they are learning just from the conversation something about the subject. And I will be educating my audiences and also motivate them for action because there are all kinds of ways in which people can take action in their own backyard. And there's certainly a need for it. And that's what I'll be doing. As, t- as part of my activism. Well, wow, that's fantastic. And I think it's important, obviously, these uh, statistics and, jeez, uh, it's just shocking and, and staggering. And I understand that the third daughter is a, a tribute to the victims. And uh, yeah, and you're, you're fighting the good fight. So thank you. Yeah, I tell you, I uh, once I discovered the magnitude of Zvimigdal, that's the name of that legal union in, operated out of Buenos Aires. I'll yeah. spell it Z-W-I-M-I-G-D-A-L. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how much material your listeners will find on, online about Zvimigdal. But the, the part about it that was missing was how many women have they victimized. And they were all Jewish women and girls and women, uh, ranging in age from early teens to early 30s, mostly. And I, because of my business background, which we talked a bit about before, I was able to extrapolate the numbers based upon earnings of the known earnings of the organization and so on, and the number of brothels and number of prostitutes they employed at one time at the height they had 30,000 prostitutes working and and in 19 around 1900 the union netted 50 million dollars in profit which is mind-boggling so i was able to figure out that we're talking between 150,000 to 220,000 jewish girls and women who had been victims and once I figured that out, I could not not write their story. I was so taken by it. And I have a problem. I don't want to write anything bad about Jews. My entire career, I res- resisted it. But I had to tell the story about what happened to these women. And we can change the past, but we can take that lesson and apply it to the present and the future by helping today's victims. And today's victims attempt to get out of prostitution. The barriers are enormous. It's, it's, again, too much to write here, to talk about here. But in the novel, I'm talking more about her life as she became a a tango dancer, and by the way, we're talking about research. 
once my protagonist started to dance tango, I figured I had to know about tango myself. And I, for almost <laughs> a year, I took private tango lessons. And at times I went, I used to dance ballet. So dancing is very much in my blood, but not a dance of this kind. And uh, I found myself going to milongas, which is dance halls where the, you dance tango. And close embrace with complete strangers, which for me was not comfortable. At, at the end of my research, I decided not to continue. Uh, many people love it, and I, can't, I, I know what they love about tango. There's a lot to it. But the emotions and, and the beauty of the, the movements, it's, it's really amazing. And I really enjoyed that part of my research also very much. But also <laughs> in terms of the when I said about letting the reader catch her breath in between, it's like... I have moments of exhilaration. I have moments in which my protagonist has had good, really, some soft afterglow with some clients, specific clients in which she developed uh, um, a deeper connection and she, they, she had an ongoing relationships going on. There were all kinds of aspects to her life that were very interesting and, and gave us uh, a bit of a pause from Otherwise, what seems to be horrific, the, the outings, the opera, at that time, they opened the big opera in Buenos Aires, which is an, almost a, a replica of the uh, a Paris opera. Not quite, but, but the same architect and the same, uh, very similar designs. So all of that, the development of uh, Buenos Aires, it was a city of immigrants, that was just growing and developing. And because prostitution was so big and so powerful and beneficial to the government, 25% of the Argentine government income from taxes came from brothels. Wow. So the development of Buenos Aires to be like the Paris of the South, of South America, came as a result of these women being forced into prostitution. That's where the money came from. Uh, so we get to have different aspects of, of what happened in that time in a growing, growing city, growing society, developing, changing. I find all of it fascinating, and I hope that the readers will do too. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for kind of opening up about that process and sharing some more of the history there behind the book. The third daughter uh, will be available September 3rd. And I understand that you are going to be on a book tour and uh, doing speaking events. So I will point, of course, at taliaconnor.com, which has uh, your book tour information and links to of course, more information about your activism, your writing, and I assume we can find that uh, short story that you mentioned. Yes, there right as well. there. Under all under the third daughter, you'll find that short story. You'll find a an article I wrote, I wrote about the background of all of that mm -hmm. uh, trafficking that was taking place at that time, and who knew about it, and who talked about it. For example, Victor Hugo, the 
the author of Les Miserables. He wrote uh, about it, uh, about white slavery in Europe, because it, how that was, women were being captured. He didn't single out the Jewish women, but it's it's a whole area of white slavery did not exist until that time. Anyway, my short the short story by Sholom Aleichem, the man from Buenos Aires, in my new translation, it's now on on the site, and I think it's all quite interesting. The re- early reviews about the book are absolutely glorious, so mm-hmm. that's very encouraging. Absolutely, congratulations on the work. And of course, we'll point to your Twitter and Facebook. I'll drop links uh, into the show notes and uh, protect.org. I think that would be probably an important link to put there too, don't you? Yes, absolutely. They, unfortunately, they're only uh, on the West Coast so far in these programs, but there are dozens and dozens of organizations. And on my website, there is a page, what can you do about about sex trafficking? And there's an article explaining it with different links to many organizations, including uh, the... Uh, the kind of hub of local organizations. So depending on which city you are, you can find organizations in your own city that you can get involved rather than on a national level. Fantastic. Well, before we sign off here, do you want to leave listeners with a, uh, a note or a, uh, any advice to your fellow scribes that you want to leave us, leave us with today? Okay. If I'm talking to other writers, uh, I, if they are if they are experienced writers, they know everything more than I do. If they are beginner writers, I can say the big advice, two big advices. One is write what you don't know. If you write only what you know, you barely have enough to fill one book. And then what? You're done with your writing career. The second thing is, you're not done. You're not ready three months after you start writing to put it online, just uh, which is happening now so much that it, and I think it's embarrassing, embarrassing level of writing. It's like someone who takes a few piano lessons and rent Carnegie Hall and asks people to come and listen to him. There's just, you're not ready. And there's, uh, I would say in Jerusalem made, and I read and went over it, not not just for, but it was a 10 years in the making, that book, but probably 80 times I read and re- I wrote and re- revised and edited and so on. The third daughter, probably about 40 times. And just the other night, somebody was telling me about a friend who started writing a, a book in January and now put it online. Uh, it's embarrassing. So sight on unseen without knowing anyone's work of your listeners, I say I can say there's a lot to learn about fiction writing. That and and take the time to study. Go to writing writing workshops. Read books about it. Learn the craft. And then the journey is fabulous. <laughs> well, I think that's a fantastic note to end on. And I thank you for your dedication and your work and uh, wish you all the best of luck 
with uh, this new one, and hopefully uh, we'll get a chance to talk again. Thank you very much, Kelton, for having me on on your uh, show. And I would like just to spell my name for the website in case people didn't Absolutely. get it. www.talia.com. Talia Corner. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us for this half of The Writer Files. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to the show and leave us a rating or a review to help other writers find us. You can always leave us a comment or a question and visit the entire archives at writerfiles.fm, where we also humbly ask you to support the show with a secure donation to help us keep going. Just click the little yellow PayPal donate button over at writerfiles.fm. And you can always chat with me on Twitter at Kelton Reed. Cheers. Talk to you next week. And thank you.